Well, I want to share with you a statement that I really do need you to wrestle with here this morning, and it's a key and critical statement for anybody that wants to understand life change in this fallen world of ours. And I'll warn you, it's a rather biting statement. It might even be an offensive statement to some of you, but hang in there with me and let's wrestle with this. And here is the statement, and that is that all good people do not get saved and all bad people don't end up in hell. I need you to wrestle with that today. And notice, and I'll explain this in a minute, that I put good people in quotes, so all good people do not necessarily get saved, and then all bad people uh, do not end up in hell. That's the only thing I want you to wrestle with this morning as we prepare ourselves to go into this time of baptism and celebrating what's happened in these people's lives. Now, uh, to begin to understand this statement, I want to talk to you about a popular myth that occurs in Christian circles today. Uh, It's a myth that I hear all the time from well-meaning Christ followers, and maybe you've fallen into this too, and it goes like this. We see a relatively good person in our world today, a person that compared to some of the bad people in our world is pretty decent, fairly moral, at least by cultural standards, and somewhat responsible, maybe your neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a service provider, but they're not very religious. They don't have Jesus in their life. They seem to have their act together. They're moral, but they don't know the Lord. And so we end up saying to ourselves, tell me if this isn't true, boy, if only that person could come to Christ, he or she would be complete. And then we even find ourselves saying they are so close to becoming a Christian. How many times have you ever heard somebody say that? I've heard it a lot. We see a person who's living a fairly responsible, somewhat balanced, relatively moral life, and we think, man, if he or she would have the Lord, they're so close, they would be complete. But then conversely, we see a relatively bad person in our world today, and you have them in your life. Maybe you're even one of them. (laughs) Manipulative, dishonest, greedy, morally decadent, maybe full of pride. There's lots of things that make us bad. And we tend to think, man, does that person have a long way to go till they find the Lord? We end up thinking they're like really far from God based upon their bad behavior. And what you need to know this morning, gang, is that this is not necessarily so. The Bible does not affirm that kind of thinking at all. In fact, it's a myth. It is not true that just because someone has attained a certain level of outward morality based on cultural standards today that they are any closer to knowing God. We need to blow that one out of the water. And it's not true, conversely, that just because someone has made a lot of sinful choices up to this point in their life, that he or she is far from God, or at least any farther than that relatively moral person. In other words, I'm going to suggest to you today that our world, rightly so in some ways, is enamored with morality, even though many of them aren't very moral, (laughs) but they think that's the be-all and end-all, whereas God goes much deeper and much further when it comes to how he wants to produce life change in us. And the reason that this is so is because of two realities that God's word, the Bible, makes clear. Realities that help us understand why some good people never seem to get saved and why some really bad people aren't going to end up in hell. And here is reality number one that we need to understand. And that's that many bad people, and again, bad by our cultural standards, are actually closer to the kingdom than some good people. 
This is something I, I hope every Christian, or at least every biblical Christian, eventually understands that there are many bad people in your world, and again, maybe even you're one of them, and I don't say that jokingly, that are actually much closer to the kingdom than we would tend to think. And conversely, there are some really good people in your life that seem to have their act together that because of their goodness and because of how they feel about themselves are actually pretty far from God. You're saying, how does that work? I want you to think about all the players in the Bible. They really teach us this. I mean, think of Matthew, the tax collector. Remember him? <laughs> uh, Matthew uh, was a guy in the New Testament that in his day and age was probably one of the most seedy and dishonest businessmen you would ever run across. Kind of think Michael Corleone uh, or, or from The Godfather. I, I mean, this guy was just not very moral in how he collected taxes. So he's at his tax collecting booth, and the four disciples, there are only four at that point early on in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, these four disciples are walking by Matthew's booth, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. And you got to believe that they're thinking, what a sinner. What a waste of human flesh this guy is. I wonder what Jesus is going to do with him. And you know what Jesus does with him? He says to Matthew, come, follow me. And the scriptures say that at that moment, Matthew got up and followed him. And immediately, a life change began. No one saw that coming. He was bad to the bone, but very close to becoming a follower of Jesus. Or how about the woman at the well? You guys remember her, the Samaritan woman? Uh, I mean, she'd been married five different times, giving Elizabeth Taylor a run for her money. And Jesus dialogues with her to the point that she is totally blown away. She's drawn to Jesus. She goes and tells everybody else about him. And the implication is her life is changed. Or how about the woman caught in adultery? Remember that? Like one of the big 10, thou shalt not commit adultery. And she's caught in the act. She's dragged before Jesus. And the religious leaders say, what are you going to do about this? The law says we should stone her. Remember what Jesus says? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he looks at her and he says, your sin is forgiven. Now go and sin no more. The implication being that she's going to listen to him. I mean, the list goes on and on. My favorite is Saul, the Pharisee, a religious leader, a really bad person to the bone. He was persecuting Christians. He stood by at the stoning of Stephen. And then he's on his way to Damascus in order to find more Christians that he can kill. I mean, this guy's a religious zealot uh, doing these things in the name of God. And what, is ha what happens? Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus in a blinding light. And in that moment call Saul into his kingdom. Are you starting to get the picture? These are bad people whom in God's eyes are a Nash's eyelash away from the kingdom. They're just one confession away from entering into a life-changing relationship with Christ. And so it teaches us, if nothing else, that many seemingly bad people in this world are actually closer to the kingdom than many seemingly good people. Because get this, guys, the opposite is also true in the Bible. Remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler was a really good person. When Jesus said, obey my commandments, remember what he said? I've obeyed all of them. And then Jesus basically essentially said this, well, how about this? Give me your entire life. Lay down your fortune and your life before me. And it says that this good person walked away sad. 
In other words, his goodness got in the way of him seeing his need for Jesus. And I'm telling you, that stuff's all over the place. Uh, King Agrippa, Pontius Pilate, all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or at least most of them, these were all good people in the eyes of culture. They were the ones fitting in and doing really well, but they never found peace through God and Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. All good people do not necessarily get saved and become Christians, and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers and end up in hell. It's one of the scandalous things about how God works life change in people. You and I judge a book by its cover. We judge people by what we see, and the Bible says God looks to the heart. He goes way beyond our finite judgment, and he sees what we do not see. And if anything, it tells us, stop judging a book by its cover, because you just don't know. Uh, Jesus was having it out at one point with the uh, religious leaders of his day, the pastors and the Pharisees, and he tries to communicate through story form this point that we're looking at here today, and I love how he does it. Look at Matthew 21, verses 28 to 31. This is a great story Jesus tells. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, the son answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he ended up not going. Jesus goes on to say, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, the religious leaders answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, can, can you imagine? I, I mean, just so we understand the context right here, Jesus is speaking in this context here to the pastors, the religious leaders of his day. He's speaking to people like me. He's speaking to people like you, the already convinced. And how would you like it if Jesus said to you, if he showed up today and said, guess what? Uh, there, there are tax collectors and prostitutes that are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That would be a hard statement for you to hear, wouldn't it? But then you'd maybe in a cogent moment, you'd say, well, Jesus, I, I don't get it. Why would you say that to me? And Jesus goes on to say, because you got bad theology here. You see, there's two sons. And there's one son that thinks he's doing really good. And the father says, go and work in the vineyard. And he says, I will. He's the good son. But he doesn't end up going into the vineyard. He ends up not actually doing the father's will. But then you got this other son who, who the father says, go into the vineyard, and he digs his heels in, and in a rebellious moment says, no, I'm not going to go. But at the end of the day, he ends up going. Which one did his father's will? Well, obviously the son <laughs> that initially seemed like the bad son, the one who was rebellious but ended up doing the father's will, he, he's the one that the father was pleased with. And Jesus is making the point that there's some people in this life that seem really good. They seem so outwardly wonderful, like things are going great, but God knows better. They're not gonna end up working the vineyard. They're self-satisfied, they're smug, they feel just fine, thank you, in the way that they are. And when they hear Jesus say, give me all, submit your whole life to me, put your hand to the plow and don't look back, they don't, because their goodness gets in the way. But then there's others that know their life is a mess. They know that they're in need of a savior. And so initially they look really bad to us on the outside, but at the end of the day, they're the ones that find God or better yet, God finds them. And again, if you're feeling the scandal in this gang, you're feeling rightly 
Because if I was in your shoes hearing this for the first time, I'd be thinking, well, Jamie, how can this be? I mean, how can you have someone living a moral and responsible life, which obviously God would want, and yet they're not going to be saved, but then you have some other people who are living like shady business ethics and decadent morality and all of that, and you're saying that they're a gnat's eyelash away from entering into the kingdom? How in the world could God operate under a system like that? And it's actually a great question. And it brings us to the second reality we need to understand in order to understand what God is saying here. And this one really takes the cake, but it's this. And that is that our human classifications of good and bad, that's why I put them in quotes, are comparative at best, while God sees each and all of us as a veritable sinful mess. See, that's really what's going on here. Let, let me explain. You and I, as I already said, we judge people and our world around us, rightly so, because it's the world we live in, based upon a comparative morality. Give me a head nod that you understand what I mean by that. In other words, most of our standards of morality are simply that we are good, responsible people precisely because we have those around us that are not good and responsible people. Philosophers talk about this all the time. The fact that our morality is comparative, so you feel good about your life precisely because you're not Howard Stern. You feel good about your life because you're not Lady Gaga. You're not Miley Cyrus, or I need to go on and on. You're not those people. You're not even your neighbor that might stay out till two in the morning or has a failed marriage or whatever it might be for the people in your life. And because you're not them, you see yourself relatively good. And relatively speaking, you just might be. There's only one problem with that kind of theology, and that's that God sees it differently. Look at how Isaiah the prophet puts it in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. By the way, backdrop here, Isaiah was really righteous. So here's what he says. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. How could you have a righteous guy saying something like that? I, I, I mean, would it surprise you that Mother Teresa, when she was alive, agreed with that verse? <laughs> would it surprise you that Billy Graham, who is still alive, agrees with that verse? They're pretty righteous people. And yet they don't see it that way. They see their righteous acts like filthy rags. Why is that so? Now watch this. This is the key. That's because their morality is not comparative. Their morality is based on God and his standard. And when you and I begin to see our goodness like that, we realize we're not as good as we think we are. And when we realize we're not as good as we think we are, though that doesn't feel good, it sets us up for our need for forgiveness and a Savior, and that's when we want and need Jesus. But without seeing your morality for what it is, you'll just stay smug in your self-righteousness, comparatively feeling good, but not really understanding your need for a Savior. I, I've done this for years. It really works. If you ever have somebody in your life, or maybe you right now, that is struggling with whether any of this stuff is true or not, I challenge you just to measure your life against what we call the Big Ten. Not the college Big Ten, but the, the Big Ten Commandments. There's over 490 commandments in the Old Testament. You can count them. That's true. 
And the top ten commandments were the ones given on Sinai to Moses when he came down with the stone tablets. Remember Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain and the stone tablets? And, 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 and those were God's top ten commandments. They are so basic in their morality that for years we put them on courthouse walls. And many of them are not really hard to keep, and that's why we feel good when we read them. So you read the Ten Commandments and said, thou shall not murder, thou shalt not steal. Uh, and we go, well, gosh, I mean, I'm not doing that type of Thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, and many of you haven't. And so you read the Ten Commandments and you feel pretty good about your life. But that's just three out of the ten. Do we all understand that? Because then you continue on in reading the Ten Commandments. Again, very basic morality that many cultures agree with. And it goes on to say, thou shalt not lie or bear, bear false witness. And you begin to squirm and you say, well, yeah, I, mean, I tell a white lie every now and then. And it doesn't say anything about white lying and black lying. It just says, thou shalt not, say it with me, lie, ever. So if you've ever lied, you've broken one of the Ten Commandments. Most of us have done that, even pastors. Uh, my, my daughter, Abby, always says that pastors are really good at telling the truth with the intent to deceive. And, and so we tend to do that. Some of us are very good at, at saying truthful things, but we're really trying to deceive people. And, and it's wrong. It's one of the Ten Commandments. How about this one? Thou shalt not covet. And again, you say, well, I don't really covet. Well, have you read the commandment? It's found in Deuteronomy 5. Let me read for you. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, nor his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or his BMW, or his hot tub. That's in the margins. <laughs> in other words, you're not to covet anything of your neighbor. And, and I do this innocently, don't you? Kim and I love to take walks around our neighborhood. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a really nice Serraro. I wish I had a Serraro like that in my front yard. You know, and oh, that's a really nice guy. I wish I had that car. And you find yourself doing that. God's looking at you saying, sinner. God's looking at you going, you're sinning right now. And you don't even realize it. You're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So you're a liar. You're a coveter. And then how about this one? Again, this one, uh, you shall always honor your parents. Do I even need to go there with many of us? I mean, honestly, I mean, who's lived that one perfectly? Not too many. By the way, these are all still the easy ones. Because then you really get down to the heart of the Ten Commandments, and you know what it says? You shall have no other God before me. Whoa. That means any time, any moment in your life where something nudges itself into first place status and nudges God out of first place status... You've committed a sin against the Ten Commandments. And again, I'm going to need to make you feel guilty about all this, but this is your life. It's true. Or how about this one? You shall never take the name of the Lord in vain. You know, we've made that commandment just about saying GD. Like if you say GD, you've taken the name of the Lord in vain. Well, it's not good to say GD, and that is taking the name of the Lord in vain. You know what that commandment really means, however? What that commandment really means is that you never, ever, ever utter the name of God without thought, emotion, and holiness behind it. So when you were singing those songs here before I got up preaching, and your mind was wandering, but your mouth in the words of Jesus, you know what you're doing at that point? Hate to break it to you. You're taking the name of the Lord in vain. And we do it all the time. Again, I'm just trying to help you see that many of us who see ourselves as relatively good, and again, compared to your neighbor, you are. (laughs) That's why I put it in quote. You're good. But compared to God's standard. He says, and this is the good news, you are in massive need 
of grace and forgiveness. You are in massive need of me. That's what God says. And the good news is, is that once you recognize that, once you understand that you need him, you know what he says to you? And this is the gospel. I'm here for you. I sent my son for you. He died for you. He stands available to be your Lord and your Savior if you will but submit to him and believe and trust in him and stop believing in your own morality because that can't make you better. He can make you better. See, that's the gospel, gang. And that's where life change is found. But you got to get over this pedantic view of morality that compares yourself to everybody else around you and fails to realize the God who calls you into his kingdom. So here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see a bunch of people get baptized. <laughs> we have over 100 this weekend here on our campus who have all come to grips with what we're talking about here today. They no longer believe their own press releases about their own morality. Uh, they're no longer kidding themselves that somehow through just being a good person or a good egg that they can save themselves. They realize their need for a savior. In fact, they have three things in common. The first thing that they have in common here is a recognition of sin and a need for a savior. It's Romans 3 and Romans 6. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that leads us to the second thing that they believe. And that is that they have come to the point of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're no longer kidding themselves that their morality can save them or their good works can save them. They know that only Jesus can save them. It's Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? This is perfect. Saved from your sin and even saved from your own self-righteous goodness. God will save you even from yourself. And he'll save you from hell. And so what these people are doing here today is that they now have a desire to follow God and proclaim their faith in the waters of baptism. And you're saying, what's that about? Well, we have pools here and at our other campuses and venues that just have regular tap water in it. Back in New Testament times, they did it in the Jordan River. Some of you have been over there. And the symbolism of baptism is really sweet. It symbolizes this, that as our candidates go down in the water, they're identifying through their faith in Jesus in his crucifixion on a cross for their sins. They're being buried with him in baptism. And then as they come out of the water, they're identifying with Christ's resurrection from the grave and victory over sin and death. These waters don't save them. Baptism doesn't save them. Their faith in Jesus and what he did saves them. The water is a symbol, a powerful symbol, a public symbol of their faith and trust in the only one who can give them eternal life, which is Christ. And God commands every believer to be baptized as an adult or as a conscious person <laughs> at some point in their life. And so here's what's going to happen. In all of our campuses and venues here, we have, I think, some people being baptized. And uh, they're going to, candidates are going to come out here at some of our venues and campuses. They're going to tell their story in the water and be baptized. Here, the way we do it at Shea is that they're going to come out and pin their, their uh, prayer to the cross. Their story is going to be read by one of our readers. And then they'll be baptized here in the waters with one of our pastors. And, and we planned something also kind of special today. And we'll... This has worked in the other two services. We hope it works here and at our campuses and venues. It's the first time we've ever done this. But, you know, every time we do baptism, somebody comes up, up, up to me afterward and says, 
I wish I did that. I, I wish I had planned for this. I wish I, I would have done that. And, and, and so we've thought of you, and what we've decided to do today is not let any of you get away with saying that, and we've planned that if you want to get baptized today, we're going to give you the opportunity to do so. You say, how's that going to work? Well, any time from my prayer on in about 30 seconds, through all the baptisms, if you desire to be baptized today, we're going to ask you to get up out of your seat, walk to the foyer, and at Venue, Chapel, Mountain Valley, and Cactus, same thing, walk to the foyer, and there'll be a pastor there. And the pastor will talk with you very briefly about what baptism is to make sure that you believe in Christ, because that's the criteria. And then you say, well, I don't have a change of clothes. We've thought of that. We have some shorts for you. We have a shirt that we're going to let you keep. We have a towel for you. We have a changing room that is private. And you're going to be able to get ready for baptism. And then after the service today, and in our campuses and venues, we'll do a closing song, let those of you want to go, go. But for those who want to do what we might call this extemporaneous baptism, today is your day. We had a half dozen people after each of the last two services, stay to be baptized. One guy last night was so special. He was a junior at Arizona State University. He was here. His family was visiting him from Virginia uh, for Thanksgiving. His dad came up to after and said, you have no idea how special that was. My son, we've raised him as a Christian home. He's been struggling at ASU, go figure. And he goes, you know, and, and, and he said he's really, he's starting to come back to the Lord. He's never been baptized. And when you said he could get baptized, he looked at me and his mom and said, I'm going. And he said, it just made our night. And see, that's why we're doing this. Yep, you can clap at that. That's why we're doing this, to offer the Holy Spirit, because this is his service, not ours, a chance to maybe work in some of your hearts and minds. You're never too old. You're really never too young if it's a conscious decision to be baptized. And some of you have waited way too long. And today is your day to do that. And we're not going to let you weasel out of it. So uh, we're going to let you get baptized today. This is a very meaningful time for all the candidates being baptized. We invite you, I invite you to share in their joy right now. This is a line in the sand for them as they declare their faith in Jesus and the seedbed of their change before you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for Christ and for the fact that he is the only one who can forgive us of our sin. He is the only one who can secure for us the salvation we need. And God, I do pray for each person that will be coming into these waters here today and at Cactus and Mountain Valley and the venue and chapel, that God, this would be a moment in time for them, a line in the sand where they declared their faith in you through these waters. And that Lord, it'd be a day that they remember for the rest of their lives. God, I pray for the rest of us that as we share in the joy, as we celebrate with them and are moved by their stories and their testimony, that, God, you might do something in us and prepare us for a life of submission and of following you as well. Because we know that you are the God who loves us and who made us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of the Trinity that we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we all say together, Amen.